the Word of God tonight, church family. Let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll be looking tonight explicitly at verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 4, 1 through 4, and I don't think we're going to be able to get through the whole of this passage, and that's okay. If we don't finish tonight, we will wrap it up Sunday morning. It's too important to leave hanging. Um, next week begins um, Adventure Club, and so we will not be back with you. We'll be turning that page, and the usual rhythms will continue as uh, the Wednesday night pattern is. So we will get as far as we can this evening. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Let's find our place in God's Word. And Peter's writing there, beginning in verse 1. He says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am also a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also <clears throat> a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Now, because of this, he then gets to his command in verse 2. He says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, seeing as overseers, not by compulsion, but shepherd them willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Let's go to go ahead and read into verse 5 there just to set a tone. It says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, the title of tonight's message, this is the Word of God, is this, The Portrait of a Pastor. The portrait of a pastor or the role of the pastor in the church. So we begin here at verse 1 and begin to introduce our passage. You can literally render it in the original that Peter is beginning verse 1 with this phrase, therefore, and I'm not going to say the trite phrase, if you know, you know what people say when they come to the word therefore, but he's connecting this to the larger passage that he's already taught. And it's, he's saying essentially in light of all that I've just said, he says, I exhort you now, the elders among you, the pastors among you, to shepherd the flock of God. Let's lay a little bit of a, a review and a context for this passage. If you know the book of 1 Peter, Peter is teaching about suffering, isn't he? He is teaching to those that are scattered abroad. In fact, I'd ask that you go back to chapter 1 and verse 1, and let's just remind ourselves that we're hitting midstream in what Peter's already been laying a foundation of what his aim is and what his purpose is. And his aim is to shepherd the church that is scattered. His aim is to encourage those who are being persecuted. And he begins and he picks up that in chapter 1, verse 1. So let's be ready to review for a second. Go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and notice how he begins. He introduces the whole book of 1 Peter with this way. He says, Peter... An apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the diaspora or dispersion in these areas, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you be multiplied. So let's just hit pause there. Peter is writing to the established church, but the infant church, the young church, who's only a couple of decades old. 
Peter is writing under the ruler of Nero and other Roman authorities who have passed the blame, the buck, upon the Christians, and they will continue even as he's writing this and in the days to come. The, the Roman government is beginning to turn their sights against the, the Christians who they strongly associate with the Jews, who they despise. Nero will later go on to, to burn down most of Rome because he wants to build a, a more glorious Rome that redounds to his narcissism, his own pride, his own glory. And so he does that. It's believed, historians believe, that Nero has most of Rome, a good whole portions of Rome, literally burned to the ground. And people die, they lose their livelihoods, they lose their homes, they lose their idols, they grow angry at the government, and they know Nero's at the heart of this because Nero was insane. Other, most of the Roman leaders had major mental issues, major problems, and major um, spiritual problems, no doubt, just as an understatement. They, they lost their idols and were resentment to the fact that they were not spared and protected from this devastation. And so Nero very quickly begins to sense an uprising among most of Rome, and so he places the blame upon the church or the Christians. And so they become the scapegoat for his attempt to burn down most of Rome. And as he does this, the church begins to be persecuted. They begin to be uh, murdered. They begin to be crucified. They begin to be taken down to the Colosseum. They begin to all manner of persecution. And so because of this, the church scatters. And so Peter has as this great ambition. This is Peter 30 years later after the, the life and time of Christ. Here Peter is is a much older man, a much wiser man. I'm sure Dave has unpacked this in the study of the overarching book of 1 Peter, but just in case you haven't been in it, just trying to do an on-ramp here. Peter is an aged shepherd, and he is shepherding, particularly he's writing to those who are scattered abroad, particularly in Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Pontus. That's why he mentions the word diaspora, those who've been scattered. This is the purpose of this letter that I'm writing to you. Now notice, picking up in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. Here he's pointing them to the person and work of Christ, a lively hope. We as the church and we as Christians have, have not just a hope, but it's a hope that is alive to the finished work of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not a wish, it's not a desire, but it is a living hope. Our faith is a living hope. Faith, And he'll come back to this theme in chapter 5. Picking up verse 4, he says, "...to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you." Why is he saying this? Because their world has been turned upside down. Rome has been burned, and many of them have lost their own lives. And he's reminding them that our hope is, is not in this world. And the things that are tangible, the things that are losing their value day by day, even as we ourselves are are physically wasting away. He says our hope is not in this world or these things, but our hope is in, a, in an incorruptible prize, that which is in heaven, the glory of God, the power of salvation, the power of God through faith, verse 5, for salvation, ready to be revealed. It's imminent in the last time. Then he goes on to say here, verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, church, so that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice this phrase, it's so beautiful. Whom, verse 8, having not seen, you love. 
Though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your, your souls. Verse 13, now therefore, straighten up. Therefore, he says, bring in the focus of your thinking. Bring in and gird up the loins of your mind. Notice this language is one of the loins is of clothing and the centerpiece of the center of the body. And when people were get ready to work, people would get ready for battle. They would take a moment to kind of bring in the looseness of their clothes with a belt or to kind of bring in stability. So freedom of movement. And he's saying with your thinking, with their spiritual minds, they need to wake up and they need to discipline themselves in this moment, in this affliction, and in this trial, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then, look with me, move over to chapter 4, verses 7 and 19, 7 through 19. Now moving into chapter 4, just laying this background of who he's writing to, why he's writing to them. He comes back to this in chapter 4, verse 7. Notice what he says. He says, church, the end of all things is at hand. So therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Listen, the church has always been called to a sense of sobriety. Part of our calling as we obey the Lord even now and as we say, what's God's will for me today? What's God's will for us today? What is that? It is to be watchful and to continue in prayer. And here Peter calls the church to move their focus from themselves and their stress and their manipulations, uh, even in their running and their their, um, persecution. But he calls them to focus their attention upon the Lord, to be watchful and continual in their prayers. Notice what he says, verse 8, he says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. We saw that verse on Sunday morning. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift. This is how you're to live, life in the assembly, life on the run. You set up little communities in the mountains and in the, in the, underneath the city streets and the catacombs. Minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability that God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, verse 12, notice what he says. Beloved brothers, sisters, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as if some strange thing happened to you. They're experiencing loss of life and home and friends and relationships. And he wants them to know this is consistent with being a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you're faithful to the truth, you you may not be looking for it, but you are going to undergo persecution. You're being blamed, in their context, blamed for things that you didn't do. In our context, it may be different things. But when hard things happen, when loss happens... Church, it's just a reminder to us not to say why. We we are to prepare ourselves for the very real calling of taking up our cross and following Jesus, denying ourselves daily, taking up our cross and and following him. That's why Peter says, listen, it's going to happen. And when it happens, do not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to come upon you. Now, again, just pause. Paul mentions in Philippians chapter 1 that part of the gift of salvation that God gives to his church is also the gift of suffering. 
Now, maybe one of the most underrated themes in the church, in the modern church all over the world today, is the, the gift of suffering, the calling of suffering. But it's real church. If you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to know, Paul uses a language in Philippians chapter 1, we're not going to turn there, but that with the gift of salvation, the gift of faith, comes the gift of suffering. And all who, he says in a number of different ways, but all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You don't look for it. You're not seeking for it. We don't have a martyr's complex. We don't need to get weird about it. We don't need to get dramatic about it. But when it happens, Peter says, here in our passage, chapter 4, verse 12, don't think it's strange. But see, that's the problem. When it happens, we do think it's strange. So we're just not used to, even here at Grace, I would imagine, even though we have a, a solid, healthy diet of expositional teaching and preaching, but should something happen tomorrow, we will think it's strange. We will struggle with it. Loss of a job, loss of life, um, all kinds of examples, a, a diagnosis, uh, some type of persecution from a higher up of being blamed for something we didn't do. It might be something connect, uh, connected to our, our faith and whatever. And we say, wait a second, Lord, I'm trying to be holy as you are holy as, you, as, as you've given me. A I'm trying to be faithful and I'm trying to share the gospel and I'm trying to uh, be a light and this is what I get. Whatever that situation is, when it happens to you, do not think it strange. In fact, I think what we need to think is strange is that we don't experience it more. The reality is, is all, as Paul says, all who live faithfully and godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So again, do not hear what I'm not saying. Don't seek for it. Say, my goodness, I haven't suffered a loss of life or job lately. I must not be doing something right. So in 2024, let me add this to my, my list of resolutions and let me go seek for this. No, that, that would be very foolish. That's not what, what we're talking about and that's not what Peter is saying. But here Peter is preparing the people of God for suffering. And I would tell you, it's the constant calling of the shepherd leaders of the church to, to do this for God's people. To tell you and to prepare you to be ready to stand strong. Uh, Ephesians 6, to stand firm, to stand strong, not to retreat, but to prepare you for the moment that you really may be living your whole life for. You don't realize it, but God is preparing you all your life for certain things. And when that moment comes, you're standing on the promises of God and the foundation of God's word. You have convictions that are rooted in scripture and you will not bow, you will not bend and you say, but our God will deliver us. And if he will not, we still will not bow. This is the kind of confidence and preparation that, that we need. This is what Peter is doing. So he says there in verse 13, verse 12, do not think it strange concerning the, the trial or the tribulation which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, that you may also be glad with exceeding joy if you are reproached for the name of Christ. Blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and God rests on you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. He goes on to talk about, verse 16, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Now look with me in verse 19. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Well, Peter, thank you. Thank you for your shepherding care. 
But what do you know about suffering, Peter? Thank you, but are you a messenger who's out of touch? What, what, what have you lost? Well, Peter doesn't go on to describe all that has happened to him, but we do know what tradition says was Peter's end. You can say it like this, Peter did live the message that he was preparing this church and these believers to live out. Tradition tells us that Peter was taken into captivity, into prison, under chains, he and his wife, that when the sentence was given out and given to him, that they were both condemned to death and that he was forced horrifically to watch his wife crucified in front of him before he died. And as she was being nailed to the cross, he, he called out to her, I believe the phrase was, remember our Lord, remember our Lord, something to that effect, remember the sufferings of our Lord, remember our Lord. In other words, do not take your eyes off of him, remember our Lord. Peter then, as they were preparing him to be crucified, Peter begged them to crucify him upside down uh, with the form of a cross that would be in the shape of an X. He said, I'm not... Um, worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Tradition says they, the Romans granted his request and he was crucified horrifically upside down. Listen, Peter knows what suffering is. He knows what suffering is like. His end was even horrific. And I don't think any of us will die in that type of death. I'm, I know we don't want to. But Peter knows what he's, what he's talking about. So this is the context. This is the background. Peter is writing to the church. He's shepherding the church. And he's writing to the church to say this. He's writing to believers to instruct them in how to endure their sufferings. And as they grow through their sufferings, he's reminding them that their faith is growing and is exercised. And that God uses suffering uniquely. He uses, you could say, the gift of suffering. I know we don't like to call it that. But he likes to use the gift of suffering to grow our faith. He uses the furnace of affliction to grow us in the same way gold, as Job describes in the book of Job. It's Job chapter 23, verse 10. But he knows the way that I take, Job says, and when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Believer, I don't, I don't know what you're going to go through in 2024, and that's not the major focus of our theme tonight. This is the background of the book and our passage in chapter 5. But I'll just say this, as the title of the book says, suffering is never for nothing. If you are a child of God, if you call upon Him and are resting in Him and you're believing in Him by faith, no matter what you go through, no matter what you experience, it's never for nothing. God is going to redeem it. God is going to use it for His glory and for your, for your good. If we truly understand that God is sovereign, that is to say, God, in ways that we can't fully explain or comprehend, there's nothing that I will go through, nothing that you will go through as a child of God that God does not permit. And as He permits it, gives permission to it, now, when you focus on it, whatever it is, that's the wrong focus. What you need to focus on is Him and say, Lord, what do you want me to learn through this? What do you want me to, how do you want me to come forth from this in a way that gives you glory? If it's cancer, it's not about the cancer. Don't focus on the cancer. If it's death, it's not about the death. Don't focus on the death. Don't, yes, there's grieving. I'm, I'm not saying that, but 
ultimately the child of God is constantly saying, God, according to your purposes, your will, what is it that you're doing because you've allowed this to happen? Help me to look upon you. Help me to not lose my faith in you and trust in you. James says it like this as we think about Peter shepherding the church to grow their faith and even at times to the furnace of affliction. You can imagine many of the first believers and the saints of the early church said, we didn't sign up for this. Is this what following Jesus means? Is this what it means to be a disciple of Christ? James says it like this. He says, my brethren, James 1 verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces, produces patience. What is one of the things that uh, trials do? Well, we do ultimately come forth as gold. But friends, the thing that we don't like is, is sometimes we're most impatient. Many of us would say, I'm an impatient person. I struggle with patience. Well, one of the things that trials do, Lord, deliver me from this scenario. Lord, deliver me from this valley of death. Lord, deliver me from this uh, person or circumstance, whatever it may be. Well, one of the things the Lord is, is, is fashioning like a careful potter in the clay is patience. Brethren, count it all joy. How do we do that? Well, that's why James is exhorting us, because we don't naturally do it. To count it joy when we fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces patience, and let patience have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he is approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So here Peter in our passage is shepherding and preparing the scattered abroad ones, the diaspora. And in some, he has told them to entrust the welfare of their souls to their faithful God, to remain faithful to what is right, his truth, the means of grace in one another. He, he calls them to entrust themselves in faith to their faithful God. Now as we come to chapter 5, He's exhorting the church to also entrust themselves to the faithful care of God's shepherds. You could say it like this, under shepherds. God is the great shepherd of the sheep. There's only one great shepherd, capital S. There's only one savior of the church. And yet God in his wisdom and providence has appointed under shepherds. Shepherds who are little s shepherds. They're not capital S shepherds. They're, they're little s shepherds. They are under shepherds, we could say. And he gives exhortation to the church. And here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, he begins to, as he's giving this exhortation, we see in these verses a great overall description of what a shepherd is, what an under shepherd is. So that the church in verses 1 through 4 might know what what the under-shepherd is and what it is that God has placed upon him, what he's called to do. And also so, so that the under-shepherds themselves, the pastor, elder, teachers, bishops, overseers, all these terms designate what a pastor does so that they may know what God expects of them. So that the members of the churches might know what to expect from their leaders and then also based upon verses 1-4 through four, how to pray for their elders. Now notice how Peter here in verse 1, in giving exhortation to the elders, and this will be our goal to cover this, verse 1 this evening, Peter refers to himself in a threefold way. Notice, first of all, he refers to himself as, number one, a fellow elder. 
Secondly, he refers to himself as a witness of Christ's sufferings. And thirdly, as a sharer with them of the glory to come. Peter here follows Paul's example of not simply showing the, 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 credit, uh, the card, the qualifications card. He could pull out the trump card, if you will, and say, I'm an apostle, so you need to listen to what I have to say. Peter doesn't write in that way to the church, much like Paul regularly says, I could command you to do this. And in some of his letters, he would tell the church and remind them that he, has, he had the apostolic authority. But Paul was wise. He, he didn't use that. He didn't come to them in that way. He would speak to them as a brother at times. He would speak to them as an under-shepherd pastor at times. He would come in as a peer. He would come in as an equal and still exhort them, try to encourage them, at times, uh, maybe to use, this is not an inspired illustration, honey instead of vinegar, if you will, to try to shepherd their hearts to the instruction and obedience of the Lord. Notice here in verse 1, Peter refers to himself before he begins to give the instructions to the elders in verses 1 through 4. He's bringing his qualifications to bear, but he's doing it gently. He doesn't just explicitly say, I was one of the twelve. He doesn't explicitly say, I'm an apostle, so therefore, here's what you need to do. Notice the first thing he brings to bear is this. He says, and I love this, I'm a fellow elder. Peter says, yes, I'm an apostle, but that's not what he appeals to. He says, I appeal to you upon the basis of a fellow under-shepherd. Here he refers to himself as a fellow elder within the body of Christ, within the church. Here in this time of suffering within the church, persecution in the church, the call is for the noblest of leadership. There can be no half-hearted leadership. The elder is called to shepherd the flock of God. And here Peter wants them to know, everything I'm about to say to you, I am. In other words, what Peter is saying is, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul says that too, doesn't he? Paul says that in, I believe it's in the book of Philippians, follow me as I follow Christ. Here, this is exactly what Peter is doing. He's using the term shepherd or elder. It's the same as shepherd or pastor. Verse 2, we see the phrasing of pastor, shepherd, also overseer and, and bishop. When the Bible mentions the role of elder, it's simply pointing to the fact of the pastor shepherds of the church. For example, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where Paul gives instruction to the church there as he makes his departure. And he says this, he says, Therefore, church, take heed to yourselves and also to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Take heed that you shepherd the church. Now notice what Paul says, of God. Now notice verse 2 real quick, if you're still in our passage, I'm just reading a cross-reference. Peter says, shepherd the flock, and then finish it with me, church, of who? Of God. So, Pete, notice there's no personal pronouns here um, that Peter uses. There's no such thing as, as pastors sometimes do, uh, elders sometimes do, they'll say, my church. Well, we know what they mean. Sometimes if they're talking to someone else, they'll say, how's your church doing, or that kind of thing. And so I'm not over trying to overanalyze the the personal pronouns in that kind of off-the-cuff way. But what Paul does and what Peter does, he reminds all of us that the church is Jesus' church. The church is God's church. The church is Christ's church. It is the, the church of God. Peter says that in chapter 5, verse 2. Paul says this here in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. To shepherd the church, and you could even put, like I do in my Bible, annotate just in brackets every time, of God. Shepherd the flock of God. We'll come back to that in our passage in just a moment. Paul goes on to repeat this call to self-examination. 
uh, to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, when he says to Timothy this, he says, Timothy, listen, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine that you've received. Continue, Timothy, in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Here, Peter introduces this introduction, this call to the qualifications and the overview of the office, and he uses this word elder. He says, I write this to you as a, a fellow elder. And it emphasizes not only office, but there's a dual role here of also spiritual maturity. The word and the usage in the New Testament is elder, pastor, not only in the sense of office, but Peter here in his passage is also pointing to the fact of spiritual maturity. I'm writing to you who is one who's appointed, one who has walked with the Lord, one who has fallen many times. Peter is humble here. This is older Peter. This is not brash, bold, young Peter in the sense of the flesh. Here we see a wiser, more mature Peter writing and shepherding the church, bold when he's called upon, but still one of spiritual maturity. You could say it like this, Peter has put away his sword. He's not as rashly cutting off ears in this part of, his, of his, his ministry. He is older, he's seasoned, he's careful. Secondly, notice how Peter introduces himself to the audience, and he just says this, to the pastors more specifically, not only as a fellow elder, but I write this instruction to you, you need to listen as a witness of Christ's sufferings. He brings in this part of his experience of one as a witness to the person and work of Christ, is the ministry of Christ. But Peter here brings into play that he was an eyewitnesses to the sufferings of Christ. What does that mean? Well, he saw in the ministry of Christ as one standing alongside him, as one who received you know, all the ridicule that Christ received. Uh, he saw the ridicule and the mockery and the, the laughing and cursing that Christ received of his hometown and also of the religious elite. Even when he was going to the cross, he saw the sufferings. He was close and up front. When Peter gave his denial of Christ the three times, he's, he's within eyesight of Jesus. The text says that the Lord looks at Peter. And that look, no doubt, was piercing and crushing for Peter. But he just summarized it in this way. He says, I was an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ, the ridicule, the mockery, the cursings of Christ. Peter was eyewitness to the questioning of Christ, the doubting of his word, people who would not listen or obey. He was a witness to the unbelief and rejection of Christ, the denial and rebellion of the claims of Christ. He was an eyewitness to the accusations and charges that were brought against Christ. Peter was there when Judas kissed him on the cheek and the soldiers took him away. Jesus, uh, Peter was a witness to the sufferings of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He saw him after he awoke, after the high priestly prayer of Christ. The text there gives this great description that he was under great duress, physically sweating and uh, drops of blood, and other times where he saw and witnessed his, his suffering. He saw the beatings and abuse that Christ bore at his trials. He saw the mockery and death of Christ Upon the cross, Peter knew that the sufferings of Christ were real. And it's within this context that he's writing to a church that is also experiencing the same types of trials, yet in different ways. He's affirming his apostleship in, a, in an indirect way by saying simply this, Church, I was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And then notice the third way in verse 1 that he brings his qualifications to bear. 
He describes, number three, he was a sharer of the glory to come. Peter says, listen, I not only saw the personal work and the ministry of Christ, but listen, there is a day of reward coming. There's a glorious day where we will stand before Christ. And this was the basis of anticipation for Peter's ministry. You can say it like this, Peter saw by privilege certain things in the early part of his ministry that pointed to greater things that were yet to come. Uh, just take your Bibles with me, just for example, turn with me to Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Again, Peter is picking up on this third qualification of verse 1, that I am a sharer, we are a sharer of the glory that is to come, a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, as the text says. What's one of those things that Peter is pointing to? Well, not only future glory, but Peter was one of the three who had the very intimate privilege to see on this side of heaven what very few have seen. Moses was able maybe to see a glimpse of it. Um, in Exodus chapter 33, when Moses asked of God, he said, Would you show me your glory? God, would you show me your glory? By the way, what a wonderful prayer request uh, for me and you to pray. We're far too entertained by lesser things, church. We're playing with, you know, uh, one author says it like this in church history. He says, we're playing with mud pies in the dirt when our parents are calling us to get into the car for a wonderful beach vacation, and yet we can't leave the dirt. We think all the glory is here in our little infantile thinking. Uh, and so many, yeah, I'm getting off track. Here, here's the idea. There is so much glory awaiting us. Peter speaks out of authority, and he says this in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. You'll, you'll remember this. This should be fresh in our minds, but it's the reminder that in verse 1, it says, now after six days, Jesus took, notice here, Peter, James, and John. This is the innermost part of the disciples. Regularly, Jesus would take these three for just moments of intimate instruction or experience, and he led them into a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face, Jesus' face, it shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Basically, this is uh, the Shekinah glory of God breaking out of the earthly frame of Jesus. Jesus was the God-man, fully God, 100% God and 100% man. But here in this transfiguration, Jesus is metamorphed, if you will, in front of them in a way that we can't quite articulate. This is what we have, the inspired record. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Evidently, this was a blinding scene. Um, they were absolutely struck. And behold, Moses and Elijah appear before them talking with him. And then Peter responds in this way. He says, Lord, it is good for us to be here if you wish let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, that's Peter, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, hear him. And when the disciples heard this voice of God, they heard it, they fell on their faces and they were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, arise. And do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but, but Jesus only. What, what is Peter talking about when he says here, thirdly, I, we will be a sharer, a partaker of the glory that is to come? Peter is speaking out of the experience of two things. Number one, he's seen a glimpse of the glory of God. He didn't just see the earthly God-man in the frame of Christ and all that his miracles were able to do. 
but he saw a taste of what is to come, and that is the, the, the glory of God. That moment when we will all stand before him, as Peter has already said, him having not seen, you love. And when we stand before him, we will be glorified. We will have a body perfectly capable of experiencing the moment. We will not pass out in frailty. We will not pass out because our, or there's overload. Um, the Lord will glorify us. It will be the completeness of our salvation. We're justified. We're sanctified. We will then be glorified, fully able to fellowship with God in purity and sinlessness and be able to bask in His glory. Well, how do we know that? Well, the Word of God teaches that, but Peter says, I saw it. He says, we are partakers of His glory. Two things happened in that passage. He saw the glory of God and he heard the voice of God, God the Father saying for just a few times in Scripture, this is my beloved Son, of whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Now, go back with me over to, to 1 Peter. Actually, just one other passage, our last cross-reference for tonight. But I want you to go over to 2 Peter chapter 1. This will be our last cross-reference for this evening. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter picks up in his second epistle... On this experience, this is how we know it's, it's, a, it's a theme he comes back to again and again. Being a partaker, a sharer of the glory that is to come. Peter appeals to this same thread in 2 Peter 1.16 when he reminds the church, he says this, When we came among you for ministry, he says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice what Peter says here. We, he says, in our ministry, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, even when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. And he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What's Peter talking about? He's referring back to the transfiguration, Matthew 17. Now notice what he says in verse 18 here. He says, and when we heard this voice which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain... And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, obey, as the light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Prophecy never came by the will of man, but of holy men of God. As they spoke, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter comes to this thread of being a partaker of, a sharer in the glory of God multiple times in his, in his ministry of writing first and second, second Peter. And Peter says this, Because of my experience of seeing and being a partaker in his glory and in his majesty, you can take it to the bank that we are sure, can be sure, of future glory. So in summary here, Peter introduces his instruction to the church by saying, I am a fellow elder among you. I was an eyewitness of his sufferings, and we will be partakers of future glory based upon what I have seen and what the Lord has allowed me to experience and to do. Well, very quickly, I want to write down the outline as we will no doubt pick this up Sunday morning. and We'll pick up right here. I want to go ahead and give it to you. I notice many of you are taking notes. I want to go ahead and give it to you. As we come to verses 2 through 4, 2, 3, and 4 will be our focus for Sunday morning. It's this, the pastor's ministry, the pastor's, secondly, the pastor's vices. Thirdly, we'll see the pastor's motives. 
And then fourthly, the pastor's master, who it is that the pastor elder will answer to. Number one, the pastor's ministry. Number two, the pastor's vices. And then number three, the pastor's motives. And then number four, the pastor's master. I want to go ahead and introduce just point number one, to go ahead and lay it down. Number one, the pastor's ministry. And we're going to pick up here Sunday morning when we look at the threefold calling that, that God gives the pastor. You could say it like this. Why do we do what we do in the church today? Or why does this church uh, do what it does um, when it gathers? And there's many answers to that, but we're going to look at Peter's answer to that. But just stop and think about it for a second, how interesting it is, because we live in a largely visual uh, age, an age that is moved by the visual, an age that everything is largely screen-based. And what I mean by screen-based is an age where everything's played out before us. YouTube is the number one social media medium over Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, now X, TikTok, all of it. YouTube drowns the others by... I mean, I don't even know what the latest stats are. I read a book a while back, and it was just talking about um, just the influence and the volume, the viewership that YouTube has. But there's something to be said for that. In other words, we're we're used to now being shifted from a word-based culture, world, and I'm losing some of you even as I say this, but there is a point. Just, just, Just track with me. Why is it that the church today still gathers and some, I'm not trying to get off track, I promise you, but some churches, their pattern is to, to, to watch a pastor on a screen. They may be a multi-site, they may be something like that. That's a, that's a whole other thread of argument about for and against and all of that. And trust me, I have opinions on that. Uh, so some, ter- some churches do do that. They, they watch on a screen a pastor teach and preach and that kind of thing. Um, I'll just say this, as we get into the exhortation to pastor elders, LeGrand, why would you not be in favor of a multi-site? Well, one, one explicit reason is how can the local shepherd elder pastor the flock of God among you if he doesn't know your name, if he doesn't know what you look like? How can he pray for you if he doesn't even know who you are? Uh, but that's, that, that's the, we're getting off track big time. And I'm so sorry. Yeah. So the idea is, is what we do here, right? What, what is this? This is a Wednesday night, and you're not at the ballpark. You're not in the gym, as uh, many of us are throughout the week. You're not at the ballet studio you're not at the grocery store here on a Wednesday night you're with a group of people that uh, quite frankly is so interesting um, outside of Jesus we may never be found together outside of the gospel and that's not a put down outside of the gospel we may not know each other at all we may never cross each other's paths so why are we here what are we doing well why we're here is we love Jesus why we're here is because we've been born again while we're here is we want to love the church. We love one another. We can't wait to see each other and to fellowship around the things of God. While we're here is we're called to pray, so we pray. But one of the chief things that we do is to come and to hear, notice here, the Word. Now that's interesting because we live in an age where like the Word, little w, increasingly, well we come to hear the capital W Word, well, we live in an age where the little w word increasingly, like, who does that? Uh, statistics, you could, I, I collect those things because they're pertinent to my calling, but you'll see more and more the, the, the professional statistics from publishers who say that most people after high school, they don't read another book. Um, 
They, they don't continue to grow or learn or read. And admittedly, the medium of reading and the word, little w word, is something that most people, when they hear about books and um, the word or words, yeah, yeah, who's got really, they don't think about it as something they discipline themselves to do. In fact, the lost world would look at this and say, wait a second, on Sunday morning, you do what now? You go to listen to someone speak for almost an hour? Who even does that anymore? You go on Wednesday night too? You go sometimes on Sunday night? You go, wait, you go three times a week? That's three hours a week to hear someone talk? Now, that's the way they would, that's the way they would say it. Now, I, I, I'm losing some of you. I get it. You're wondering, like, what is he doing? What, what I'm doing here is to try to remind us what we're doing here is something that God has prescribed. We're not doing it because this is, the, this is not the glee club. This is not the ambassador club or the lions club where they also get together and maybe somebody will come in and give a, a 15-minute speech. This is the church. We're not any of those things. And the reason we gather is to hear and be exposed to God's Word. Well, why do we do that? Because Paul exhorts Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Timothy, preach the Word. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Part of that shepherding work, as we'll see on Sunday morning, is to feed and tend and care for the sheep, but with the Word of God. So it's not just book clubs, and it's not just social clubs, but what we do is Word-centric. We're a, we're a word-centric, gospel-centric church. And friends, that's what makes us odd. But you know what? That's okay. We already know it because we're also sheep. And sheep are odd, as we'll pick up on Sunday morning uh, with a brief introduction to, to understand what Peter says in verses 2 through 4. You've got to understand sheep, and then you'll understand shepherds. But sheep, well, church, it's not glorious, but that's who we are. We are sheep who need shepherding. And we're ultimately under the great shepherd of the sheep's care. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah and amen. Well, let's pray together and we'll hit pause right there. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we, we just commit ourselves to you and to the word of your grace. And I do pray, thank you for the patience of our church, even in this subject, Lord, on a Wednesday night. I know many are tired and I just pray you'd give them a special encouragement, a special blessing. And would you help us to sustain the linear thought, Lord, as we pick up here on Sunday morning and uh, finish through verse 4. And would you help us to be helpful in our thinking about why we do what we do, why there are even pastors and elders, and why there are sheep. And just remind us uh, just the basics. This is really the basics of who we are and what we do. And we pray that this would be formative in our thinking and, and helpful for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Church, we love you. Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you.